when you have 60% of Americans who couldn't even absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure, 500,000 people falling into medical debt every year, half of our seniors living on $25,000 a year and less, and on and on and on. The people in this country are in trouble. And the way to uh, win in 2024 is not for the Democrats to say, hey, things are doing well. The economy's getting better. Because people, people know what they know in their gut. And they do vote with their feelings. And you can't blame them for that. It makes sense to do that. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast author, spiritual leader, and newly declared Democratic presidential candidate for 2024, my friend, Marianne Williamson. Welcome, Marianne. Hey, thank you for having me, Andrew. It's great to see you. It's great to see you as well. Uh, we were just reminiscing about our first meeting about five years ago when we were both running in the last cycle. Uh, and first, let me salute you for taking it on again um, because you and I both went through different journeys, uh, I suppose, in, in the last cycle. Um, we share some concerns about both where the country is and, and also uh, who the Democratic nominee is going to be. <laughs> you know, be, be honest, I mean, um, though, though I think our concerns might, might be uh, like slightly different in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, we, we can get into it. But first, let me salute your courage, your leadership, your patriotism for getting back in the fight. Thank you. Well, you're right. We both know what it's like in the belly of that beast. So it wasn't an easy decision to make. But I'm sure you agree with me that when you are up close and personal with that situation, you see both how corrupt the system can be, but also how wonderful voters can be. I was very impressed by the people that I met. I'm sure you were too. You really experience when you're running for president the goodness and the dignity of, of the voters. You really do see that that's not where the problem lies. The problem lies is with the political media industrial complex that uh, works very hard and assiduously to sometimes suppress basically the will of the people, and that's what we need to deal with. That's what you're seeking to deal with in your way, and I'm seeking to deal with in my way, and that millions of your listeners are seeking to deal with in their own way, because it's a, it's a societal breakdown, and people realize it, and we need to change it. Yeah, so on the media industrial complex, uh, and I've written and spoken about how I thought they were deeply unfair to you. Why do you think that is? <laughs> like, I was talking to Evelyn about it. Um, we think a lot of it is... Uh, the fact that you're a woman, um, uh, it, it also might be that you're a genuinely independent actor. But to the extent that you have a theory as to why it seems like reporters uh, don't give you a fair shake, uh, where have you landed? Well, first of all, I want to be clear that many did. Or I don't know if many did, but some did. And I, I want to have a space in my mind for the possibility that even the, some of those who didn't might change their ways this time. So I don't want to... You know, and I don't want to have a chip on my shoulder. That was then and this is now. But I do think that there is a group of people in this country who have a predetermined agenda for where they think the country should go. And it's the replacement of the will of the people, really, by a kind of political class, very paternalistic. It thinks that it knows. I don't know what they're so proud of. We're six inches from the cliff in terms of the state of our democracy, the state of our environment, <laughs> the state of our cities, the state of our everything. So I don't know what they're so proud of, that they should be declaring that only they, only those who drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified enough to lead us out of it. But they do. Not only do they have a predetermined agenda, but they have a predetermined set of people who they consider um, the ones who even should have the right to effectuate that agenda. And, of course, you see what happened with Bernie Sanders as well as you, as well as me. I think it's the deepest level. It's our politics. We could talk about the misogyny. We could talk about a distrust of um, anything that has to do with anything whole person or spiritual as opposed to strictly transactional. But I think at the deepest level what they're concerned about is a more progressive uh, political vision making its way into the uh, central leadership establishment of how the Democratic Party presents itself to the country. 
Well, I, I will share a personal story. I interviewed a producer, former MSNBC producer named Ariana Picari. Have you run across Ariana at all, Marianne? I don't know. Not that I know of. You would like her. Um, so she left MSNBC in part because she said, hey, I don't think that we're doing right by uh, the public. Um, and she shared a detail that I found very personally relevant. She said that she was given a list of presidential candidates never to have on air. <laughs> Hello. Uh, and I was on that list, obviously. So I was like, oh, that's not very cool. Um, but, but then it does make you think, it's like, who the heck is coming up with that list? Why are they then sending it to producers uh, and presumably anchors saying like, hey, don't interview these people? Yeah. I remember during the last campaign when um, Vogue magazine did a spread of all the women candidates. I was a woman candidate. I was left out of the of, of the story. And also you're seeing right now actually polls online of democratic possibilities. I'm the only one who's actually declared, right, other than the obvious, you know, inevitability of the Biden, we assume, of the Biden campaign. Everybody's listed on there and I'm not listed on there. But you know what the difference is this time? People are noticing that. That's what I think is interesting. I think that there's been a kind of awakening uh, on all kinds of levels among the American people over the last few years. I don't think that people will take as easily to that uh, obvious omission. distraction, <laughs> distraction technique. Um, I hope not anyway. So I referenced concerns about Joe Biden. Uh, I think 60% of Democrats that were polled said they'd prefer that he does not run for re-election again. And yet there's this massive conventional wisdom um, from kind of the journalist class or the political class or some combination that running against Joe is quote unquote enabling Trump or, or something along the, the, those, those lines. Um, I will share with you my, my concerns about Joe um, that I, I think that it's I, the average American is troubled by the fact that he might simply not be up to the task of running the country for another four years uh, based upon his vitality, his acuity, his um, age. Uh, and some people say, oh, that's ageist to even suggest that. Um, the average American I speak to thinks that 82 might be too old to be heading into your second term. Uh, and I, so I, I think that in my mind, it would be very healthy to have some kind of competitive primary determining the next generation of leaders of the party. Um, I, I think that Joe has done a lot as president, uh, but I don't think he's the right fit for 2024. And I, I think that a younger version of him would recognize that. Um, so that that's my standpoint. I will say that I'm very uh, supportive of your run, um, one, on a personal level, because you and I are friends. Two, I think your vision for the country is very positive and and uh, healthy, and I'm aligned with you on a lot of the things you want to see for people in communities. Uh, but three, I do think there should be a competitive primary because I, I think the fix being in for Joe um, has the potential to leave us in a really, really rough spot as a country. So I'm just sharing my thinking. Um, and I don't know which of those elements <laughs> like, like you uh, agree with, take issue with. Well, the only conventional wisdom that should matter is the voice of the people. This is an issue of democracy. Like you said, a majority of Democrats have said that they would like to hear other voices. The idea of engineering the primary session uh, so that Joe Biden has an easier time winning and the field is cleared of anyone who might wish to run against him is undemocratic. It harkens back to a time when a bunch of men sat around the table smoking cigars and just deciding who they thought the nominee should be. If, in fact, the voters in the Democratic primary considering all the issues that you have said, considering the pros and the cons, decided, yes, I think that Joe Biden should be the, the person that the Democratic Party nominates to go up to what is probably, obviously, either Trump or DeSantis, then God bless him. It should be Joe Biden. But it should be for the people to decide. That's the point that seems so important to me. We either believe in democracy or we don't. And um, 
it's to me, if some people would see his age as an issue, some people would not see his age as an issue. I think the bigger issue here has to do with the vision of the country and what agenda is going to be strong enough, not only the person, but also the agenda, to present to the American people as an alternative to what the GOP is going to be throwing at us in 2024. I think a lot of people say, well, he was the man for 2020, he defeated Trump, and all that's true. But that doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a necessary uh, uh, conclusion based on that, that he is the person to beat Trump or DeSantis in 2024. And it should be the people who decide. Well, certainly, I, I love the sound of that. I love uh, the sound of people actually getting to decide uh, who their, Imagine their leaders that. are. Democracy. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So one thing I've heard about people being uncomfortable with Joe running for re-election is that it could very much lead to uh, President Kamala Harris um, in in a way that w did not reflect the will of the people. She was in the same cycle you and I were, and then she dropped out uh, before the, the voting started. There's a lot of concern or ambivalence uh, around her being president in a way that, frankly, to me, would be somewhat, you know, not stamped by the popular will. Uh, and one idea that's come up that I personally like a lot is that uh, maybe there should be a primary for the running mate so that the will of the people can be expressed in uh, who might end up the next president, uh, especially if it is Joe again, because, you know, Joe's getting up in years. Well, there is a historical precedent for that. It's actually a modern phenomenon that the candidate chooses the vice president the way we do. Lincoln did not choose Andrew Johnson, for instance. Andrew Johnson was chosen because uh, he was from a southern state, but he was supporting the Union. Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he, uh, he wanted uh, Henry Wallace to continue. And it was the others in the Democratic Party who knew how precarious Roosevelt's health was, et cetera, who then went for Truman. So it's not historically aberrational. On the other hand, when you say we should have a primary to choose the vice president, if they're already trying to rig the primary for president, what makes us think they wouldn't rig the primary for vice president and choose who their boy Pete Buttigieg or one of the other. So the idea conceptually is fine, but I wouldn't trust the uh, process on that one necessarily any more than I um, uh, trust the process um, uh, regarding the presidential. But yes, you're, you're right. This is certainly the kind of thing people are having to think about in this election. Yeah, I, I think in the very old days, originally, the person who had the second most votes was vice president. Yes. <laughs> so so yes. there certainly yes. are, like, uh, are different ways to go. You and I became friends on the trail. Uh, did you spend any time with 
uh, President Biden when he was candidate Biden on the trail? I wouldn't say I spent time with him. I met him a few times. He was, he was lovely. He was perfectly polite, kind, respectful. His wife, I think, is particularly charming. I met some of his family. I thought they were lovely. This is not personal. I'm not taking any personal pot shots at Joe Biden. That's not what this is about for me at all. No, I was just curious because I also have spent time with uh, him and, and Jill, um, less so as family members, but they were also always very warm and positive. Yeah, lovely people. Lovely people. Uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the issues, and it sounds like you and I have a slightly different take on it, but uh, like, like I think that Joe was the right candidate for 2020. Um, but yeah, I well, obviously he was. Yeah, he, he obviously beat was. Trump. I mean, he got Trump out of <laughs> yeah, nobody's doubting <laughs> that. And, and all credit where credit is due. Yeah. But I also think, you know, that's not that that's not necessarily true in 2024, personally. Well, not only that, I think there's more than that as well for me, which is, yes, we didn't fall over the cliff by electing Trump, but we're still six inches away from the cliff. Uh, yeah, the, that's true. And I don't think that, you know, I, I, I think of the Biden agenda, you know, particularly if, if, if the Biden administration plans to come at the, the 2024 elections uh, with a message to the American people that the economy is doing well, the unbelievable disconnect between whatever geniuses and whatever D.C. think tanks would come up with a message like that versus the visceral experience of the majority of Americans, 64 percent of whom are living paycheck to paycheck, just shows the, that, you know, Washington, it, it, I've always heard it was a bubble. It's more than a bubble. It's a walled-off city. It's a, you, you don't know what's going on in this country. If you're going to go submit to the American people that the economy is doing well, which, by the way, means that you learn nothing from 2016. So what I see in, in Joe Biden is the effort to help people survive a basically unjust economic system. The, what I wish to submit to the American people is that this administration will end the unjust system. It's not enough to just help people survive. We should, the government should be helping people thrive. And that would mean more than shaving off a little college loan here, giving a little bit more to Obamacare over there. It would mean universal health care. It would mean free college, uh, tuition-free college and, and tech school. It would mean free child care. It would mean paid family leave. It would mean a guaranteed livable wage. It's business if we're going to take these incremental approaches and give you a little bit here and a little bit there. It still amounts to the Republicans offering you crumbs, the Democrats offering you a cookie. And I think every American should be able to feast on the rights and the opportunities, economic and otherwise, that are afforded by the richest country in the world. Uh, that, that's a vision of abundance. That, that's a vision uh, of I abundance. Think. Yeah, and we have abundance. That's the thing. We have abundance. The issue is who has the abundance. So over the last 48 years, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, we have had a massive transfer of wealth, which is really a nice way of putting institutional theft of $50 trillion that have gone from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1%. We have plenty of wealth in this country. It's who holds it. It's held by very few people, and we have policy after policy, both in terms of our tax structures, in terms of our corporate subsidies, that actually make it easier for those who already have to get more and makes it harder for the average American to even make it. When you have 60% of Americans who couldn't even absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure, 500,000 people falling into medical debt every year, half of our seniors living on $25,000 a year and less, and on and on and on. The people in this country are in trouble. And the way to win in 2024 is not for the Democrats to say, hey, things are doing well. Economy's getting better because people people know what they know in their gut, and they do vote with their feelings. And you can't blame them for that. It makes sense to do that. Well, we are the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and we should be able to do a lot better uh, by our people than we're, we're doing right now. So you referenced D.C. as a walled garden, uh, and you've been spending more time in D.C. over the last few years. Uh, what what uh, have you gotten out of that? Because uh, I've never lived in D.C. I'm curious what your experience has been. Well, people are the same everywhere, and there are some wonderful people here. But it's also, interestingly, ground zero, isn't it, for some of the people. You have three times the amount of corporate lobbyists that you have legislators in this town. So some of the people who are <laughs> well, making the most... Well, a lot of them the are most, former legislators, mm -hmm. so they, you know, over That's time, right, they, too. That's right, yeah, too. That's so, uh, add up. Uh -huh. So some of the forces that are making what you and I would consider the most nefarious plans 
for how healthcare should operate in this country, how food should operate in this country, how uh, energy should operate in this country, how foreign policy should operate in this country. Some of the people who represent obasis to the bottom line of corporate profit maximization for huge corporate entities, even at the expense of the workers, at the expense of health, well-being, and safety, and security of people, animal, and planet, they are headquartered here. But also headquartered here are people who are doing their darndest to try to make it better. Some of whom are the brave exceptions to the corporatist uh, bunch which runs the government, but also NGOs, staff members. So you meet both here. It's kind of ground zero. And also, I think you said something before, Andrew, that I think is important for us to note. You said, given that we are the richest country in the world, we should be able to do better. No, we can do better. They choose not to do better. Remember, when you're talking about things like uh, universal health care, livable wage, paid family leave, these things are considered moderate positions in most advanced democracies. So we yes. have one group of people here who just don't care about that. And the other group of people who say it's complicated. Andrew, it's not complicated, it's corrupt. So if you have, you know, if, if you have uh, some leaders basically within the Republican Party, who just don't care to solve all that gargantuan sea of economic despair out there, but then you have others who don't have the spine to fix it, who don't have the moral courage to fix it, we need to get in there. People who are not part of that system and say that we will. And that's why I'm running. So uh, spending time in D.C., how do people react to you if you're just hanging out in the street? You show up to an event. I mean, I... These day-to-day -day experiences. I, I, you, Human beings uh, live here. You know that. I mean, and some of the people that I like here, you know, they, they, don't, they don't agree with me politically either, you know. There's, you know, I have some real neoliberal friends. Who, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing in my mind when it comes to personal relationships. Which I, which I, don't, I, I think has been some, sort of lost. Uh, you know, I'm told that in D.C. people used to break bread and have drinks together from uh, different parties, uh, different ideological lanes, and then now that happens less, uh, you know, which sounds like a bad way for things to go. I, I'd also note that I believe Washington, D.C. is now the wealthiest county in the country uh, per capita, which I don't think was the case when I was growing up. I feel like that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Well, when you were growing up, Citizens United had not given corporations unlimited power to send their lobbyists into this town and make clear what they wanted to have happen. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So I, I'm putting myself in your shoes because, you know, we, we have direct experience running for president. Last time, you and I spent a lot of time in Iowa, um, which may or may not even, uh, you know, be an early state. I mean, we're, we're not sure. Um, you just went up to New Hampshire, which will be an early state. I think the odds are high that New Hampshire is the first state to go, uh, but that the DNC will be mad about that because the DNC is trying to uh, advantage uh, Joe and put South Carolina first. Um, what have your experiences been like going back 
to New Hampshire? Uh, and how do you see yourself spending your time uh, over this next number of months making the case? Well, New Hampshireites are angry, understandably. I mean, I can't speak for every New Hampshireite, but many of them, uh, I can assure you, think what Joe Biden has done there is wrong. I mean, it's such an obvious engineering. I mean, yep. Joe Biden did not do well in New Hampshire, so let's put New Hampshire aside. Joe Biden did well in South Carolina. He has James Clyburn and others, Jim, Jamie Harrison and all of that. So uh, I think this is just one of the many ways in which people are seeing through. You know, this, this, the Wizard of Oz here, and people are, are not okay with it. So I'll certainly be in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has a tradition of being very open to independent candidates and more recently very open to progressive candidates. So it shouldn't be Joe Biden's or the DNC's uh, a decision whether or not, and it's, and it's not, clearly. That's part of their state constitution. So New Hampshire will be first. I will be there, and I will be hoping, and I will certainly be stating so, that Joe Biden is planning to debate me if, in fact, he announces, which I assume that he will be. There should be a free marketplace of ideas. Joe Biden is, is, is planning to offer in 2024 the alleviation of stress. And I don't think that the alleviation of stress is enough to offer the American people. We need to offer genuine economic reform. So I will be out there saying it, whether it's in New Hampshire, South Carolina, Michigan, Georgia, Nevada. Um, and like you said, we don't know what's going to happen with Iowa. And I'm, I'm sure that you and I both, I'm sure that we had the same experience. It's fun being out there. You know, when people have asked me what it was like running for president last time, I said it was like equal measure, brutality and exhilaration. The, the media, the meanness, the stuff online, all that is brutal. It's painful. And then talking to, to voters and really Regular tapping in to the yearnings <laughs> and, the, and, yeah, and the, the visions of the average American is, is, is a wonderful experience. So I'm looking forward to it. I had to get to that point, you know, where like, yeah. Yeah, the, those were the best times, um, hanging out with everyday voters in the early states who just want to make things better. Uh, and in the best of cases, they actually start to see you as someone who's in their corner and wants to uh, solve the problems. Uh, half of, I think, when people showed up to those events, they, they just want to say, are you for real? Are you genuine? Are you, <laughs> you know, um, uh, are, are you actually on our side? And when they concluded, it's like, well, I think this person's sincere, then it, it goes a long way. Well, your, your stump speech was truly great. I mean, that was what you presented. And I remember sitting in the audience in Iowa going, wow, yeah. And, oh, and so, people, so kind, yeah, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. I think that in the last election, people were understandably in a place of we just want to beat Trump. We just want to beat Trump. But I think this time people are, first of all, people are open. I believe, I certainly hope, to to a real conversation, suggesting that what could beat Trump in 2020 might not be what would beat Trump in 2024. And it might not be Trump in 2024. There's like a very strange... Or DeSantis. Know, or yeah, any or, of them. Or, or, or any of them. Any of them. Yeah. I agree with you that the folks in New Hampshire uh, are bent out of shape, rightfully, because they did everything right last time, as far as I can tell. They got out in force. They had a well-run primary. They didn't vote for Joe Biden, which didn't know that. That's what they did wrong, <laughs> <laughs> as far as the DNC is concerned. I mean, it's so obvious. It's so overt. I can't even believe they don't even pretend anymore. You know, the, the DNC is supposed to stay neutral until after the primaries. And I think, personally, that if they had done that in 2016, Either Hillary or Bernie would have won the uh, nomination, but either way, I don't think Trump would have ever been president. But they do what they do. Yeah, the, the, the DNC is not an impartial actor. I mean, we all know they were in the tank for Hillary in that, that, that cycle. Uh, this time, uh, you know, they're clearly engineering the process to protect Joe as much as possible. One of the things I think is painful about doing New Hampshire Democrats dirty is that's a freaking swing state. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to be like, hey, you guys don't matter so much, but oh, you got to get out and vote to, you know, save oh, democracy. Yeah. And like, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And I, mean, I think, but there are so many people that were told you have to, you have to vote for us because you'll get your student debt canceled. Well, not really. You have to vote for us because the, um, 
the uh, higher minimum wage. We'll make sure you get a higher minimum wage. Well, not really, because the parliamentarian was against it, so we're going to hide behind her skirts. We're going to take care of the environment. Yeah, but then we've given more uh, drilling permits. Uh, Biden has given more drilling permits than even Trump did. Yeah, we're going to codify uh, Roe v. Wade. Yeah, we're going to have police reform. All kinds of things that were promised. And I don't know how, uh, I mean, I'm not giving strategic advice to the Biden administration, obviously, but I don't know how they plan to go back to people who were willing to stand in line for seven and eight hours. Well, we didn't give you, well, we gave you a little of it, or in some cases, none of it, and expect those people to be willing to uh, stand in line again. No, we need something different. There is no corporatist democratic message that is going to beat the Republicans in 2024, but I think I can, and um, otherwise I wouldn't be running. So one of the dynamics I think that's used to justify uh, having South Carolina first and uh, New Hampshire and Iowa not um, is that South Carolina is more diverse. Uh, New Hampshire is predominantly white. Iowa is predominantly white. Um, and there, there's an argument that that's not representative of the country. It's not representative of the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, on the flip side, um, you and I spent a lot of time in Iowa in particular. And it, it pains me that uh, Iowa has gone from a quintessential swing state, uh, purple, to red, uh, plus nine. Um, so has Iowa, for that matter. Uh, and the National Democratic Party is essentially saying, look, rural, white, Midwestern state, you know, we're, we are not going to be investing in you anymore. Uh, and the New Hampshire picture then gets a little bit uh, more negative, I would say, because it's sending a similar message. And again, New Hampshire, you know, it's like they, they, um, they've done everything right as far as I can tell. Um, but one of the things that pains me about is that it accelerates or increases the polarization uh, between the two parties, where if you say to certain types of voters, it's like, well, you know, sorry, rural white Midwesterners, not a priority for the Democratic Party anymore. We're going to go to diversifying areas. And then the people that are in those states still, including the whatever it is, 40 uh, you know, one percent of Iowans who are still Democrats are looking up, saying, "Wait a minute! Like, what? What just happened?" In addition to everything else, it's stupid. You know, when uh, Lyndon Johnson signed civil rights legislation, he said, "We just lost the South for a generation." He didn't say we just lost it for fifty years. He said we lost it for a generation. And when the Democratic Party, in just the way that you said, just kind of blew off the South. That was ridiculous. You don't just give ground like that. And now you're talking about giving ground in certain rural states, et cetera. The Democratic Party should be standing for rural America. The Democratic Party should be standing for Southern America, um, uh, the American South. And, and the problems, the deepest problems in the rural communities as well as in the American South are economic problems. The Democratic Party needs to return to its traditional value of unabashed advocacy for the working people of the United States, not just the managerial elite. I mean, it's, it's stupid on top of everything else. But it's also a, 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 a swing away from the principles on which we purport to stand. You know, it's also very dangerous because Franklin Roosevelt said that we would not have to worry about a fascist or authoritarian takeover as long as democracy delivered on its blessings. So here is the DNC and the Democratic elite who say to someone like me, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this because somebody primarying Biden, you know, all this, it's so big on a primary Biden. Last time that happened, Jimmy Carter lost. What, Ronald Reagan had nothing to do with that? You're going to blame the whole thing on Teddy Kennedy? That to me is like saying, my uncle died of cancer and he ate an apple that morning. So apples are bad. I mean, it's just absurd. But more importantly, the problem, if we have an authoritarian threat in our midst, which we do, the issue is not to suppress democracy. The issue is to use democracy, to stand for democracy. And that's why I'm saying that we should be offering to the American people the genuine economic reform, which would be the embodiment of a genuinely democratic agenda. I agree with you that the way to make us more resilient to authoritarianism that is a very real threat is more democracy, not less. Whether that's yeah, the exactly. Democratic Party. Uh, and you know I've been championing things like nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting that I think would truly mm -hmm. open the system up. You're uh, sympathetic to those reforms, is that right? Oh, absolutely. Ranked choice voting, I think, is really important. And listen, you and I both know about the importance of third parties in American history. Abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the Women's Party. 
um, civil rights movement obviously came from the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Council. The greatest social movement, uh, social justice movements in the United States did not emerge from the two major parties. We all know the history. They're not mentioned in the Constitution. John Adams said they could be the greatest threat to democracy. They could form, in Washington's uh, words, a faction of men more concerned with their party than with their country. So I think that efforts such as yours are important. I think each of us, though, you know, Gandhi said that the Indian independence movement was led by the small, still voice within. Each of us has to follow our own heart, our own gut. Where do you feel you can make the biggest difference? So to me, it's not either or. Some people will feel moved, such as you, to work outside the uh, two major parties to bolster a significant third party. Uh, listen, we know that the Democrats and the Republicans have formed a very unholy alliance making it very, very difficult for anyone but them to even be in the conversation. That's true. But it's also true that the Democratic Party in its history has been a powerful, a powerful stand uh, for the working people of the United States, for the average American, and the principles on which we stand. My heart leads me to work there, including, I know the efforts to invisibilize me, and uh, I think it would be much easier to do if I ran third party. So. I'm uh, standing up for my nostalgic memories of what the Democratic Party once was and still can be. Well, I, I had a similar experience to you where I was running in Iowa. I was in a diner uh, and I said to the waitress, uh, hey, I'm, I'm Andrew Yang and I'm running for president. And she said, oh, really? Which party? And then I said, Democrat. And then she was like, oh, and That's like, right. you know, That's recoiled right. like I'd said something uh, dirty. And, and I thought that was super sad because in theory, the Democratic Party is standing for people like her. And somehow she does not think that the Democratic Party stands for people like her. I've read a couple of articles about how if you see where people stand on issues, they're more in favor of Democratic issues. Just don't tell them it's supported by the Democratic Party. You know, the vast majority of Americans want universal health care, want free child care, want tuition-free college. They just don't like the association of those things more with the Democratic Party than with not without. And that means the Democratic Party needs to look at itself in the mirror and make some changes and not look at candidates like me who would say, hey, let's really become the core traditional embodiment of, the, of those values within the Democratic Party and try to shove us out. It's so interesting to me that the corporatist Democrats look at someone who is progressive like we're trying to take over the party. They took over the party. We're Franklin and Eleanor. They're the DuPonts and the Morgans. So, I, Well, I, I'm with you on the fact that uh, there are different approaches uh, to try and make things better. And I, you know, I, I endorse anyone who's trying to make something good happen. Uh, whether it's within the context of the Democratic Party uh, or the Republican Party or any party or a forward party. So you're going on this journey. Um, you and I both know what the journey is about. Um, I, you know, I hope to, to join you at some point on the trail. I be, hope be, you be will. I'd be honored if you would. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have some fun together. We'll uh, yeah. have some, uh, you know. Uh, we were on stage uh, in Iowa together. Yeah, yeah, we were. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I feel like you and I saw each other literally like, uh, I mean, yeah. Or, you know, dozens of times. I mean, I don't know if it, it got up to that level, but I think it really might have. Uh, it was always a great time. I, like, yeah. I always enjoyed spending time with you. And like you said, the best time on the trail is when you're actually talking to real live yeah. voters who are trying to make a decision for themselves. Um, you should know when I was in South Carolina last month, there were a bunch of people there who wanted a competitive primary. Uh, and they wanted a competitive primary because... Uh, they wanted some energy and resources to their state. By the way, the red wave that everyone says missed the country actually hit in a few places in November. Uh, it hit in Florida, it hit in New York, and it hit in South Carolina, where the, the Democrats there um, are really feeling themselves to be the minority party in a very significant way. And so then they look up and say, well, we've got a lot of cloud on the national stage because we're going to be the first in the nation, in the primary. But then they say, wait a minute, there, there might not be that much energy around this primary if Joe you know, is coronated. So the South Carolina Democrats I spoke to said that they very much want uh, there to be like a, a genuine competition. And there were a few people there who said that they 
would prefer it if Joe didn't run, which isn't surprising given that I think that's the viewpoint of a majority of Democrats. Well, I will certainly be offering them an alternative. I can't control who they vote for. That is this democracy. But what I can't control is whether people will be offered an alternative to the neoliberal corporate-backed political agenda that the Democrats in far too many cases represent. Yeah, and, and that is uh, exactly why I admire your run so much, is that the people deserve a choice. And, Absolutely. And I, and, and I think that there are a dozen major Democratic political figures who look in the mirror and think to themselves, I, I would be a great president um, who are not going to run. And the, the reason they're not going to run is not because they think it's the right thing for the country. Uh, it's because they've been convinced that it's the right thing for them. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that, that tells you everything you need to know. So if they're bowing down to the DNC, even in their decision whether or not to run, what kind of president would they be? Right? If they're already showing that they're not putting first what they actually think is best for the country. So, hey, you know, I read somewhere somebody said that if I, if I run, I'm committing political suicide. And I thought, what kind of political career do I have to, you know, that I can kill? And that's why I think in all seriousness, someone from outside the system is really what this, these times demand. The status quo will not disrupt itself. This, the political status quo is so imbued with the undue influence of corporate money and corporate power at this point that I think the real disruption of the system will come from someone outside. You know, this idea that only one of them should be considered qualified, only people whose, whose careers have been entrenched in the car which drove us into the ditch should be considered qualified to lead us out of it. I think that's absurd and I think people are seeing it. I also think that Washington, you were talking about this town, it's filled with political car mechanics. And many of them are very good political car mechanics. The problem, though, is that we're on the wrong road. And that goes back to Franklin Roosevelt saying that the primary job of the presidency is not administrative. It's not technical. It's moral leadership. So yeah. I think that people are open to that. And the, one of the things that interests me is that in the U.S. Constitution, as I'm sure you're aware, the qualifications for uh, the president are 35 years old, born here, lived here for 14 years. Now, if the founders had wanted to say, had to have been a senator, congressman, lawyer, governor, they would have. They were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself. What is the skill set? What are the qualifications that you think are most required at this time to face the challenges of your generation? And I think someone who's not connected to that, who doesn't see my career interests there, uh, I mean, I think part of what I do bring is more important than what I don't bring. I, I'm going to share a story from D.C. that I used to tell on the trail, uh, which is that I went there in 2017 talking about the fourth industrial revolution and automation and uh, what was the government going to do about it. And it was a very senior mechanic, in your words, who said to me, Andrew, you're in the wrong town because this is not a town of leaders, this is a town of followers. Absolutely, the they know it. To, and the only way we're going to do anything about it is if you create a wave in other parts of the country and bring that wave crashing down our heads in DC, that's the only that's way. That's right. They, and, they don't and, even- and I, and I went around saying, well, that, that's what we're here to do, we're here to create the wave, let, let, let's go. But this is the problem, they're delusional. They don't seem to realize how close the crowd is to the gates of the Bastille. They think they're safe whether the the, the crowd cannot take it anymore or the crowd is willing to take it because they're safe. Bill, Bill Gates' grandchildren will be fine no matter what. So that's such a smug thing to say to you. Oh, go create it elsewhere and then maybe we will change. But you're right, they, they are, this is a town of followers rather than leaders. And the message that needs to emerge at this time, which would represent a real U-turn, we've got to close the aberrational chapter of neoliberal economics in order to begin a new, more just society in, the, in this city. By the way, I thought your book, you know, your book, War on Normal People, was so good. And I read it during the campaign, and you introduced me to a lot of ideas that are more in the air now, but I hadn't even thought about um, uh, when, I, when I first read your book. It's, uh, this issue of AI is huge. So if I'm ever president, you got a job because, uh, we do need to face the things that you've been saying we need to face at a much deeper level. And the voice that you represent there, even though they won't 
ready or willing to let you in, um, it's a very necessary niche. Well, AI is speeding up. Have you played with ChatGPT and the and the gang, Marianne? Because like AI now is scaring the shit out of a lot of people. I don't know if well, they use ChatGPT. This Bing conversation, did you read yeah. about all that? Oh my totally. God, that's it's truly terrifying. Truly terrifying. They should shut that thing down. Not the government should shut it down. Microsoft should shut it down. That's what's so outrageous, the lack of ethics in people in so many industries where their economic bottom line, their short-term short profit maximization is overrides everything else. It's sociopathic, sociopathic. It, whether you're an economic system or an individual that you just don't care how your actions will affect other human beings. That's sociopathic. Well, when you talk about the entire, um, oh, what does it mean to be qualified? What's interesting is that there's actually now something of an asymmetry where uh, the Republican Party is much more open to uh, less traditional candidates, in part because they've turned on the media <laughs> in a particular way. So the, the trust in media uh, among Republicans is only 19%. It's crazy low. Uh, among independents, it's 38% or so. And then among Democrats, it's 69%. So you have folks in the media in particular who will present someone as not qualified and then Democratic primary voters are more likely to heed that or, or listen to it. Though, by the way, the, the trust is going down for all uh, all uh, parties uh, and all levels. I mean, like, you know, the 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 rise of the, uh, uh, the the less traditional candidate, I think, is going to continue everywhere. Um, but there there is this set of holdouts in the Democratic Party that it's not the case in the Republican Party. And then there are there are folks who look at it and say, well, Trump was a terrible president, which I agree with, and he was a non-traditional candidate. Um, but that that to me doesn't mean that every non-traditional candidate is Donald Trump. Like that that was one of the things that was presented to me sometimes. And it's like, have you noticed that we're different human beings? <laughs> you know, yeah. like there, there might be like a vastly different uh, approach here. Well, Abraham Lincoln was a non-traditional candidate. So, you know, the Democratic Party, those who are called often the normies within the Democratic Party, have an oddly codependent relationship with the Democratic leadership establishment. It's, it's odd, isn't it? Meanwhile, the Republicans don't have that. You know, I remember in 2016, the RNC said, you can have Jeb Bush, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, and they said, nah, we want Trump. So oddly, it's so odd, isn't it? Because the Democrats have the more egalitarian policies but the more elitist relationship to its own constituency. The Republican Party has the elitist policies, but the more egalitarian relationship to its own constituency, even to the point, unfortunately, where for crass uh, you know, opportunism on a political level, they have been willing to allow in voices and keep voices, such as you see right now with Marjorie Taylor Greene sitting on a big committee or George Santos or whomever. Um, but they are open to a greater array of voices. And um, there is an in-between state where you, you, don't, you don't celebrate people who are speaking outside the purview of what should be considered our, uh, political, our democratic ideals. You don't go over there, but you do go into opening. You know, the Democrats like to say we're a, we're a wide tent, but they don't really mean it. They mean it as that kind of Democrat. They say we're a wide tent. They mean it, we want you, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're brown, whether you're Jew, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian, and so forth. But they are not open to the kind of ideological diversity that the Democratic Party should, should represent. You're uh, a spiritual leader and someone who uh, I'm sure made all sorts of uh, thoughtful deliberations leading up to this. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to a comedian friend of mine, and he said that his job is that the universe talks to him and then he talks back. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, curious whether uh, you grappled with this in a particular way, whether there was any uh, sense of, and I'll speak for myself, running in 2020, I just felt like, okay, I got to do this thing. Like there, there was like a calling, a stirring. Um, and, and it was happening to me when I was writing The War on Normal People, the, the book you read. And that book kind of poured out of me. It was such... Uh, really a, good a wonderful writing process when that happens. Um, and, and then after I finished that book, 
uh, I was convicted. I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. Uh, you know, I'm going to run for president, um, and uh, I'm going to do my best to try and help millions and millions of people. Uh, and and I think you know if you undertake this kind of journey, like you have something that either calls you or stirs within you. Um, ha have you been at the same place since the, the last run? Because I will say also, since the last run for me, like after I uh, suspended the campaign in New Hampshire in 2020, um, like my, my spirit has kind of uh, waxed and waned in different ways because, you know, like you wake up some days and you're like, <laughs> you know, you like think it feel differently than others. Uh, like uh, what has that arc been like? And was there something that, catalyzed you and said, okay, I'm, I'm doing this again in 24. Well, it took me a year just to heal on a personal level because it is that. a brutal experience and it certainly yeah. was for me. So for a year, I didn't even want to think about any such thing. I just had personal healing and forgiveness of myself and others to, to work on. When it was, it was brought up in conversation with a friend of mine and that was followed by a lot of conversation with him, with others. Um, I had my ear to the ground, my eye to the sky and my ear to the ground. How do other people feel? And what I get, what is what I'm getting in terms of my yearning for where America should go. Is that shared with other people on the level that I think it would need to be shared? Are people willing to stand on the agenda of a real U-turn in this country as a real rejection of neoliberal economics, as a real disruption of the system, as a real commitment to a new beginning, as a real sense of obligation uh, to our ancestors, to our descendants, or enough people? Is this just me or is this enough of a lot of other people who I respect? And um, I took a college tour, uh, eight colleges and universities. So I feel I did my due diligence. And I was surrounded by some really smart people who I respect, who as friends and colleagues uh, really stood with me in the inquiry. I didn't start out from a place of, oh, I hope it's true. In fact, there was a period of time when it was very somber for me, realizing that I thought it was true. It's like running into a, to a burning building. I'm not naive anymore. You're not naive. We've been up close and personal and with the viciousness of it. So, yes, this was not something of like, hey, let's run for president. Um, I'm very serious. And also, I'm not doing this again just to change the conversation. I'm not doing this to change the conversation. I'm doing it to win the presidency because those people who are saying, I'll wait till 2028, if, this, if, if the years in front of us do not go well, there might not be democratic elections in the United States in 28 or in 32. So this is the time, and um, it's not like I'm the only one. There's nothing like that. It's a collective, the zeitgeist is about collective activation. But I do think individuals can be a kind of tuning fork, and I think the president is a tuning fork. Listen, Trump was a tuning fork for the very, some of the worst aspects of the American character. And I'd yep. like to be, as president, a tuning fork for some of the dignity and the decency and the brilliance of the American people. Well, you are a true leader in an era that desperately needs leaders. Uh, I, for one, am very glad that you're running. If someone wants to help support you, uh, where do they go? How do they do so? First of all, thank you, Andrew. It's an honor, and I'm so deeply grateful for your generosity. Uh, Marianne2024.com. Marianne with two N's. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E-2024.com. Mm -hmm. And I hope people will join in and uh, give what you can, volunteer, be part of it. And uh, political miracles have happened in this country, and they can happen again. Well, you would be one to know, my friend. Uh, Thank you so much for undertaking this on behalf of all the people that love you and uh, are with you. Uh, and I'll see you on the trail. Uh, Thank excited you. for you to be kicking off this journey yet again. Nothing makes me happier. Thank you, Andrew. Much love to you. God bless you, honey.